Welcome to the Red Dove, our story center on Black women, activism, and mental health. I'm Blue. I'm Rainy. And I'm Liz. And tonight, the Red Dove, we are going to be um, unveiling a new idea we came up with. We're going to try to do this every week at the beginning of every show. We're going to call it Good News in Activism. And we're going to try to highlight some news that's going around something positive in activism and accomplishment, a good idea. And we get a lot of emails. Thank you for emailing us. And we see stories ourselves. There's just so much to cover. So we wanted to um, start doing this type of segment. And if you see something, feel free to email us and maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. So, but tonight we decided for our inaugural opening of this type of segment, we're going to go right to Blue and me, our home state, New Jersey. This week's Red Dove Good News and Activism is Mount Laurel, New Jersey. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the news. Excellent story coming out of Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Great example of community activism, of a community coming together and rising up as one against some racist motherfucker named Edward Cagney Matthews. He's now in jail. He is in a jail cell. And that was as a result of not his years of vandalizing, assault and battery, uh, stalking. No, 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 no. It took a viral video that was released uh, by the time you hear this episode almost a week ago of Edward Cagney Matthews uh, saying a lot of racist language at Black people. And at the end of it, he says, I live at 3602 Gramercy Drive. Come fucking see me. And then the community did. There's almost 200 people surrounding Mr. Matthews' house um, and demanding justice. At the end of this, this is a very truncated story, but uh, at the end result, Edward Cagney Matthews has been arrested, is facing potential federal charges, bias crimes, and an open investigation into the years of the bullshit that Mount Laurel Mayor Stephen Sedgwick and on down the line let happen. There is a awesome video, you've probably seen it by now that we shared on our Facebook that Decolonize South Jersey put out. Check them out, Decolonize South Jersey. You can see it on our website or our Facebook as well. But I don't want to like give it away if you haven't seen it yet. I know Blue, I know Rainy, I know you guys saw it. This is an excellent like 30 second clip that they put together with music. It's hilarious. Go check it out. I just wanted to add the statement from Black Lives Matter New Jersey. When we say we show up for the community each and every time, we mean that. Being there is not just about protesting when the cameras are present. It's about making sure your community can count on you 24-7. We are there for those who need it throughout New Jersey. And here's how you can help, listeners. Black Lives Matter New Jersey, in addition to their monthly meal distribution, will be having a book bag drive in August. This is them. Our hope is to distribute 200 book bags and supplies to kids in need. We will be unable to do this without your help. BLM New Jersey is completely independent from the global network, and we 100% depend on donations from you. Red Dove, let's go. Here we go. Their cash app, dollar sign, Black Lives Matter New Jersey. Venmo, at Black Lives Matter New Jersey. PayPal, capital S-U-R-J hyphen N-J at P-R-O-T-O-N mail.com. Don't worry, by the time you're listening to this, we will have already posted with all this information on all three of our platforms. Red Dove listeners, donate, support Black Lives Matter New Jersey. No, that's fine. This is a good example of like what we've talked before um, when we talked about Beyond Survival. This is an example of the community policing themselves. Here's, here's like a scary ass, violent, racist white man that, that, you know, the supposed like cops know about this man and his activities and have done shit about it. 
So if this is a, a beautiful example, nonviolent example of the community organically rising up and taking care of business. <laughs> tripping, absolutely tripping. That was, I mean, after I saw it, I text Liz, get your people, girl, get your people. Like, what is wrong with dude? <laughs> I don't know. I play stupid games, win stupid prizes. True. I mean, the audacity, just watching it, like, oh man, that that motherfucker looks like somebody who hasn't had his teeth rearranged yet. Right. That's what I said, Rainy. I was like, wow, I feel like there were so many other ways that, you know, or not other ways, that's the wrong word. There were so many ways that would have been, you know, accepted in, in other people's eyes as well. And he really was being saved. Like, maybe the the reason why he was being saved was for this moment in particular. Because he should definitely have about five or six pairs of veneers. Like, from childhood to adulthood, his teeth, how are they in the, in the right place? He, he should be pooping incisors. Girl! It doesn't make... That video of that one gentleman who had his hands up as this man was pushing his bulky chest into him and yelling these obscenities at him. And I was like, I was just waiting for it. I was like, so, so when are you going to punch him, punch him, punch him, <laughs> punch him. And that man was like, I'm not touching you. Get out of my face. And I was right. like, the, right. I, but that just goes to show like the double standards. Yeah. Right. That he had to keep that calm because, you know, right. he probably didn't realize he was being taped. Thank God he was. But he's like, it's going to be my word against this man's word. And even though he is in my face on my property, I have to make sure that I don't defend myself or I don't do anything that is construed as assaulting him, even though this man was being assaulted. Had had that been reversed, people would be like, oh, yeah, he was totally justified in knocking him on his butt. Right. Like. You know, he would have been justified in, in any other type of thing. And it, had he been in any other state that allowed guns, and he'd be like, oh, yeah, he would have been justified in, in shooting that guy. But now the roles are reversed. And again, this is a man who was clearly very comfortable with using this language. The fact that he was comfortable using that kind of language in front of a cop. And the cop was like, oh, just, you know, move away, sir. Right. Again, that is clearly that is somebody who has. This is somebody who has not had a good fist to the face. And, and sometimes these people just need a punch in the face. That's, that's how you straighten this type of stuff out. Talking to this person isn't going to work. Reasoning with this person isn't going to work. Like getting in somebody's face like that, you want to play like that, then I think you be ready for that. But I mean, good on that man for keeping that composure had that been me i would have thrown everything at the everything in the kitchen sink at this man <laughs> there would have been dna under my fingernails from his face but I the cop I actually said the cop actually said and you can see it in the video the original video all right cagney calm down cagney like and that he knows him by name because he knows this asshole and he hasn't stopped him. This Edward Cagney Matthews is accused of selling drugs. When the cops went into his house, he had drugs. He had not the fun kind of drugs, like the life ruining ones. And he had, they are, he's known for breaking and entering. Right. He's known for putting like feces on people's cards. Like there is a slew of, accusations coming forth um we're not going to get into it here like look it up but it's deep y'all this is jersey's tw uh twisted tea yes and i think it's crazy too because you brought up some good points rainy like you you know we've all seen those videos where um and or had those situations where we've been out and someone is fighting or stealing something and the black guy is the one who's trying to break up the fight or he's trying to grab the person who's running off and the police comes up. He's so focused on getting the black man on the ground. Mm. By the time the black man has his hands behind his back, his face is on the pavement. He's laying straight out. 
He's like, I'm not the criminal. He looks around like five people have to tell him that before he lets the guy up. So like, club. like remember that that nightclub that happened a couple of years ago, somebody brought in a gun and shot in that nightclub and the bouncer tried to attack and he attacked the guy and the cops came and shot and killed the bouncer. Yes. The black man who was trying to save lives. Yes. And just killed him instead of the guy who was actually the criminal. Yes. Yes. Definitely. And I loved when even, you know, because he knew they were coming. He knew it. He he knew in his body. All right. I've been I've been effing up. He must have whatever he was hitting. He hit it a few times too many that day because he knew as soon as he saw that man. I wish I had his name to discuss him by name. But the first person who or the first person on video that addressed him prior to the um, protest outside of his home, when he said to him, you know, basically like we're handling this today. Like you're not going to keep treating people like this. And Edward says, I, I mean, I'm sorry. Like basically, so sir, that's, and that's the worst type, right? Because now you're just, so you thought you were just going to make a fool of this man in his face. You thought he was just going to be like, oh, that's okay. We didn't know you didn't know that was okay. That is perfectly fine. Like he, like, come on. It's, it's really, it's outrageous, but it also is unfortunate because, you know, it's just a matter of time for it to sprinkle and hit, you know, your area. And when it does, you're like, wow, like, you know, even though it's always hitting, right? Like it's mm -hmm. always ever present, but I think present, but I think this aspect of things going viral now adds another, you know, component because you you look at what you experience from an outside perspective. So. It's a good example of like technology um, aiding in a movement or yeah. aiding, you know, social justice, how, how much, what a bigger audience and how quickly you can get to such a large number of people. These racists, number one, they can't hide. And number two, they can't get away with it anymore. Right. So I like that. I mean, that's how... Derek Chauvin got convicted, right? Had it not been for that video, they yes. would have brushed it off and said he was resisting, he was on drugs. They would have lied about how Floyd died. And it, that would have been just another, another black body. But because now this is how you fight back, right? Is that, and, and you know, people, this is also what you do with activism too. When you see this stuff happening, you know, if you can't jump in into the middle of a fight, you know, like I wouldn't jump into the middle of that. I'm, you know, not a very tall woman. I'm not about to put myself in between two men, but I sure can tape something. Right. I sure can keep my camera up and make sure that this story is told properly. So that's something that I love watching people are more getting more and more comfortable with me. Like, let me just tape this. Let me just you know, however you want to do with your GoPros, with your phones, with whatever you're doing, <laughs> pretend like you're playing Pokemon Go for all I care. I don't care. Right. Just, you see this stuff happening. Good on whoever taped this, who did not shy away and yeah. was like, nope, we're going to get all of this on camera. So yeah. nobody can say that's not what he meant. That's not what he said. It's his word versus his word. Right. So, all right. You want to, you know, again, play stupid games win stupid prizes you want to dox yourself this man doxed himself yeah <laughs> like, you can find me at okay okay right. cool right. we all um, have google maps fine um, gotcha. yeah. that was the crazy thing though when he hit when he hit it with the black slang i'm like huh like <laughs> where what is happening at like with all of this situation you really were talking like big dog like you like that was weird you that think was, that we won't show up? We'll show right. up for a cookout, please. And it's, it's not, right. It's not even like the houses are separate. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it didn't take much for someone to show up, period. Like, <laughs> what are you doing, dude? He was so hard with it. Like, ugh. Yeah, just but let's celebrate Black Lives Matter, New Jersey, definitely, for just being amazing um, with their goal, first of all, of donating that many book bags. Um, that is exciting and trying to help relieve some of that pressure from parents and, you know, families, period, 
and children. So, I, but can you believe we're talking about school already? Mm. I, feel like I, <laughs> I feel like I just got on summer break and I was like, Jeez. this happened too fast. Right? I love like, where are your lesson plans? I'm like, <laughs> um, leave me alone. <laughs> Tonight we're doing part two, Black Wall Street. And we left off uh, we just started talking about the rise of Black Wall Street. So, yeah, and just as a reminder, right, we are going from origin story of the Greenwood District all the way up to 1920, 1921. This is not a show covering the Tulsa Massacre. So back to Greenwood. Dun, dun, dun. Among the dynamic figures who created the Greenwood District's 35 square blocks were Emma and Ottawa W. Gurley. Emma was a teacher and Otta was employed with the Federal Post Service, but uh, resigned to participate in the Oklahoma land rush. And their first business was uh, like a boarding house or like a, a rooming house near uh, the Frisco tracks. And Gurley himself, fun fact, named the road Greenwood Avenue, which was in honor of a city in Mississippi. So Emma and Gurley's boarding house becomes super popular for Black Americans escaping the oppression of Mississippi, and they would arrive on the, by the train on a regular basis. And Gurley went on to build three two-story buildings and five residences, purchasing another 80 acres of farmland in Rogers County. Uh, he also founded what is now known as the Vernon African Methodist Episcopal church. And the racial climate in Oklahoma rendered Black residents unable to shop anywhere but Greenwood. So flip it and reverse it, that actually only served to expand Greenwood more quickly. By 1913, many more businesses had become established with the financial help of the city's most prominent bankers. Two schools appeared, Dunbar and Booker T. Washington High School. The educational system in Greenwood was excellent by any comparison with the rest of the state. Freshmen studied algebra, Latin, and ancient history, along with English, science, and music. Sophomores studied economics and geometry. For juniors, the curriculum emphasized trade-oriented subjects. Seniors studied physics and trigonometry, vocal music, art, and bookkeeping. So important was the educational component of the district that teachers were among the most highly paid workers. Hmm. Hum. Oh, wow. Many had a Steinway piano in their apartments and were considered some of, some of the most highly respected professionals in the district. Wow. So when you pay teachers well and you value education, sounds like things work out pretty well. I, what an amazing concept. Uh, just the black excellence again. I mean, like, you know, you black people coal and they'll make diamonds and it's amazing. I mean, look at what they do when left to their own devices, right? Like when leave us the hell alone and just let us do what we do and look at what they can come up with. And without the influence of racism, without that burden of racism and oppression, you know, like a monkey on the back, right? Like look at how high they soar without all of that. And, you know, this idea that, you know, Black Americans are incapable. Oh, no, no, no. Very, very capable. It was probably an embarrassment to the rest of Oklahoma. Seriously. Um, the Mount Zion Baptist Church took its place next to the Vernon AME to accommodate the enormous Southern Baptist denomination. Uh, at its full state of development, Greenwood District, came to house 22 churches on a 35 square blocks, 22 churches. Wow. Rick, also Ricketts restaurant became a landmark for dining out and the first Dreamland Theater was constructed within easy reach of the man's grocery stores. Uh, Augusta and JB Stratford arrived in Tulsa only two years after the girlies. Uh, these families entered into a partnership dedicated to the, to the district's development, despite some differences in approach. They shared a mutual quote 
distrust of white people, end quote, and accordingly began the Greenwood practice of employing only their initials. For whites to address black men by their first name was considered a form of derision, of insult. The prodigious Stratford Hotel built by J.B. Stratford was accompanied by clothing stores, drug stores, cafes, barbershops, beauty salons, and a host of essential luxury shops. And in time, insurance companies were added to the directory and a skating rink was built. Despite the relative safety of Greenwood during its development, the Stratfords were well aware that in Oklahoma, it was not considered a crime for mob to kill a black person. J.B. Stratford was an unconstrained voice against Jim Crow in Oklahoma and typified the aggressive Greenwood response to racial insult. The occasional white visitor was astonished at the black American's response, at the black American lack of tolerance for remarks and epithets that would have elicited bowing and scraping in other communities. Such an example was driven home when a white delivery man hurled an offensive quip at JB on the street. Before the white man knew what happened, similar to Mount Laurel, JB was thrown down, uh, thrown him, threw him down to the ground and proceeded to straddle him and punch him in the face until he was bloody. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Again, that sounded like a face that was in need of a fist. And this is like before 1920. So this is not new. It's just not taught in our history books. But anyway, uh, not surprisingly, yes, JB was charged for assault, but all charges were dismissed. He got an acquittal because as far as the courts were concerned, uh, a white man had insulted JB on quote, hallowed ground. JB believed that a general success was to be achieved in a black community through the pooling of resources, collaborations in which fellow entrepreneurs were mutually supportive. As had the girlies, the Stratfords purchased large tracts of land as well. And then they subdivided them and sold them exclusively to black Americans. Uh, in the spirit of mutual support, Businesses were serviced by colleagues from the community and their establishments instead of relying on resources from white Tulsa. One company, the Acme Brickworks, reaped the benefits of serving as the primary brick construction service in the district. And its work can be seen in nearly every structure of the 35 block commercial zone. While the black Americans pool uh, money was being pooled, many in the district still work for white employers but did not allow any of their income to remain on the quote, white side of the tracks. This form of double saving grew the coffers silently and rapidly. Wow, so invest in black America, buy black businesses, produce only here. I mean, this is just amazing. Like, it makes sense. Yeah. And at this time period, like as we said in the last episode, this is um, a third approach that was um, that was being experimented with at this time. In short time, the Stratford's enterprises in the Greenwood district included two dozen rental properties worth in today's money around $2 million. Wow. Their Mammoth Hotel was at 301 North Greenwood Avenue and it was the largest black owned hotel in America. And it stood as the crown jewel with 55 modern living rooms a gambling hall, dining room, salon, and pool hall. The Stratford Hotel was noted for its performances of jazz, along with the local Commodore Club. Greenwood was the town in which a young Count Basie, or is it Bassey? I think it's Basie. Is, is it Bassey? I think it's Bassey. Basie. Is it Thank Basie? Mm-hmm. And we'll remember him. I think we brought him up when we talked about Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yes. His memory serves. But yeah, so thank you. Um, a young Count Basie first encountered big band jazz in Greenwood. For a time, these celebrations could be held without repercussions. However, dun, 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 enter the white person. Jazz was almost an embryonic art form in that era, and it deeply unsettled 
the white population. White mm. Christians in, yeah, white Christians in particular across the tracks labeled halls where such music was played as, quote, dens of iniquity, adding religious indignation to their resentment of a black community's superior wealth. JB was, uh, he's a marked man for his litigation against the railroad as well. JB fought for accommodations due to the black traveler and he further stirred the pot by railing against Jim Crow and in particular segregation. His outrage against lynching of peace-loving neighbors by mobs was unconstrained. I really, I really think that that's such an interesting way of putting it and such an interesting word unconstrained right like outrage against lynching peace loving neighbors like that that outrage would have to be constrained right like that these people spent so much of their time constraining these very real emotions and anger and hurt and fear and that jb stratford found a place where he didn't feel like he had to make himself small anymore and he didn't feel like he had to assimilate or constrain his very righteous indignation and anger, right? Like, he's like, yeah, no, I am pissed. You guys are full of shit. This is not cool. And I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with being called names and I'll punch you in the face if you do. Like, just this come up and it's like just reacting like any normal person would react in these situations. And, you know, that we have to refer to it as being constrained because the double standard for black Americans at that time. And even today, how we react that double consciousness that W.E.B. Dubois talks about that we have to be twice as good to be considered half as good. And that we have to always be conscious of how we're being perceived and him not being, him not caring about how he's being perceived. And that idea that, Ooh, he's off the rails when, you know, like so interesting to me and, and frustrating that, that is the way things were and sometimes still are. Yeah, and it reminds me of like the importance of our history books reflecting the whole history because I don't think that it's any mistake that this story uh, is like buried, you know, to for white and for black people to know the story of J.B. Stratford and to understand like Twisted Tea is actually not new. You know, it's just like attempts are made to suppress it, to for the rest of us to forget about it or not even know about it. Another prominent family were the Williams, John and Lula Williams were two were two of the earliest residents. Uh, little infrastructure was present by the time of their arrival at the turn of the century. John Williams had an extraordinary talent for machines of every sort, and for a time operated the chilling equipment for the Thompson Ice Cream Company. He was paid so well that he eventually was able to purchase the first automobile in Greenwood. It was a 30 horsepower vehicle. It cost about $1,600, which is the equivalent of $53,000 today. Wow, wow. It featured a three-speed manual transmission and a top speed of 50 miles per hour. Williams made all the repairs. Williams made all the repairs of the strange new contraption himself. And he was so proficient at maintaining it that black and white Oklahoma residents outside of Greenwood started to bring their cars to John. Within a few years, John compiled a clientele list that enabled him to let go of his job at the ice cream company and open his own garage. At Not To Be Outdone, Lula, she uh, opens up at 420 East Archer Street, in, which was in the middle of the financial action of the district. A confectionery, I guess it's like a soda, is it like an ice cream shop or just a candy store? She said, well, it's, and then she confuses me because she says it's a confectionery where candied ice cream was offered. And, but whatever it was, it was so good. She quit her teaching job. Ooh. Not that she was suffering because she was in Greenwood where they actually right. paid them. But. Right. So jealous right now. Candied ice cream. Um, now I want to know what candied ice cream is. 
I know, and we need to bring that back. Uh, she added an extensive soda fountain and the project was solely quote unquote Lula's baby and a wildly popular one. So like basically John didn't like come over and mansplain how to run a business is what I'm getting. Good for you, John. Right. <laughs> right. Stay in your lane. <laughs> As John's garage brought in handsome profits, he stayed busy constructing three-story buildings to house apartments and office space to go along with Lula's confectionery. Lula's successful venture left her with a taste, get it, for more <laughs> and the <laughs> sorry, <laughs> couldn't help this. And the couple's next goal was to provide Greenwood with a theater. In short time, their Empress Theater opened in 1913 at 17 West 3rd Street. The Empress was no modest example. It sat almost 800 people. It featured performances of stage musicals and vaudeville acts. Lula added a second theater that would become an iconic landmark even in Tulsa's present day known as the Dreamland Theater. And in case of an ideal timing, the second theater paralleled the growth of the film industry happening outside of Greenwood District, but at the same time. Um, this was like Hollywood was just getting started. Black film companies started multiplying in like on the East Coast from like Chicago to Florida. And at the Dreamland, um, moviegoers saw the, mo uh, the much anticipated film called the Green-Eyed Monster with an all-Black cast. What? They watched an all-Black cast movie in an all-Black theater in an all-Black town. Yes! <laughs> wow. 1913. Oh, my God. I, oh, I have and they're making themselves all rich as fuck because they're helping their neighbors in the Greenwood district do better. What a concept. Right. The Williams fortune continued to grow with investments in other communities and John and Lula were to remain among the leading power couples of the community. All right, now every good town or district you need public transportation, unless you live in New Jersey or like some parts of Philly, some may argue we don't really have like a subway system, but anyway, um, Greenwood had a much better system than Philly. They were blessed with the presence of Simon Barry, who devised a quote, nickel a ride plan in a topless Model T Ford. So he like basically took a Model T Ford, kind of like modified it, and then started people started charging people like a nickel for a ride all around town. That was that like, is cool, right? So the first Uber. Right? Yes. But not soulless. Like <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's all so cool. So it's like, do that thing you're thinking of. Take that risk. Go for it. Who cares if you fail? Try. Because Simon, because this was a success, he then established the mass transit system of multiple buses, so highly functional that the city of Tulsa eventually purchased them from him. Wow. The Roots took riders all the way into Tulsa, and he owned the Royal Hotel as well, where he regularly, regularly shuttled wealthy oil barons in his charter airline service. At the peak of his success, Barry is said to have earned over $500 per day. Wow, which is I a ton today. I don't make $500 a day now. True. True. I don't know who I thought I was. I was like, that is a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't make that either. But um, <laughs> most people don't. And it's only because he's like part of this community with a mutual goal and everybody's trying to help everybody else get rich as fuck. I wonder how much that would be in today's time. That's crazy. Come on, math fans. Let us know, please. <laughs> And Tolson's will note that he also created what is known as the Lincoln Park, and he built the first swimming pool in the city, along with other recreational facilities. Um, I would like to know that I, I, I did 
the math, by the way, because I really had to know. Yes. So $500 a day in 1913 would be worth about $13,595 today. $13,595. Mm-hmm. I did the math on just the 500 we were both sitting here, yeah. right? Liz is over here re- going on, explaining. <laughs> Me and Rainy are like, if you add the one and then carry the two, you'll have to, like, um, I just yeah. need to know. I just, I right? need to know. Well, this episode, if you unpack it, and thanks, Blue, for bringing this to the table, this is heavy on economics. This is heavy on math. This is heavy on financing. Um, and this, again, going back, Ijoma Oluo's book. So you want to talk about race, how racism, half of it, hand in hand, is goes with economics. So if this shit interests you, go further. But of course, you also uh, need medical services. And the Lincoln Hospital came to serve the Greenwood District well. And that's in large part due to Andrew C. Jackson, who is the local physician and surgeon. The Mayo brothers of the Mayo Clinic fame once stated that Jackson was one of the most able surgeons in America. With such a reputation, he instilled a great sense of trust in all that he met, and he treated both white and black Americans an astonishing fact in that era. So he was seeing white patients too. That's how yes. good he was, that white patients were going to him too. Yes. I mean, not that other black surgeons weren't great too. Don't, don't mistake me. I'm just saying like his reputation preceded him that much that they were able to get over their racism to be like, yeah, you know, I could be real racist, but you know, this tumor doesn't really give a shit. <laughs> like- right, right. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. We definitely didn't mean it in that way. She was like, dang, if the white people like him too, then he was good, good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we, it's just it's the time period, you know. It also is like what it is though, right? Like at the end of the day, like the reality is just that like we are, you know, and, and owning this more so in the past year than um, ever before. And, and just like we covered some of the, um, black female inventors, black creators overall, you know, thinking about Black History Month and Black History it period all year long. You know, we like we celebrated last episode with the Olympics. You know, we are more, Rainy, you said it very eloquently, we're more than capable, right? So we have to stop telling ourselves this, these stories that we don't own, you know, and a lot of it is too the fact that similar to you know how we think about we use we see media the media social media as a tool or other things other technology waves as a tool right there are also just like you mentioned all the time Liz so many undocumented um, happens happens uh, happenings I guess the word would be so you know even when we think about that that the story can be so easily skewed to discuss what was not happening. Whereas we know that we have done amazing things, you know, and people are constantly seeking us out. So it is, you know, once again, like straightening your crown, being reminded of that greatness through this story, because there's no reason to truly think like you're less than capable. You're, no one is, you know? Yes. Among the most important components of a community intending to chart its own course was a newspaper to serve the Black community, defend their agenda, and resist injustice. The Tulsa Star emerged in Greenwood as the only, quote, staunchly democratic African-American paper, end quote, in the nation. In addition to its attention to local urges and exterior warnings, the Star was at all times promoting the district's achievements. First on a weekly basis, then as a daily, the community's creations of hospitals, schools, theaters, churches was trumpeted throughout the region. The creator, editor, and publisher of the Tulsa Star was Andrew Jackson Smitherman. 
and he's described as, quote, a spirited and bold, sometimes known to swim against the tide, end quote. In the beginning, Smitherman was wary of the district's, quote, founding fathers, particularly O.W. Gurley, whose authority seemed overblown. Smitherman was fond of referring to the town giant as, quote, the king of little Africa, end quote. <laughs> Smitherman's early career was spent as a traveling agent and advertising manager for the distinctly Republican Muskegee Center. And four years later, Smitherman published his first paper called the Muskegee Star, advocating, quote, self-reliance, end quote, for all Black enclaves and championing all Black causes. Smitherman ra rallied against racism in all of its manifestations. When Republican news organizations claimed that Black leaders preferred Jim Crow transportation laws, Smitherman shot back that if such were true, these supposed Black leaders were, quote, ripe for a full coat of tar and feathers, end quote. Ooh. I mean, that's just even, why would you even print that or say that out loud? Like, how does, who who was supposed to be believing that? I mean, it's like the same people who tout these ideas. Black people don't want, you know, critical race theory either. Black people don't want this. Like, you know, racists are going to try to use that one Black person and be like, look, see, see, they don't like it. And you're just like, okay, you're stupid. And weird, because my thing is always like, if you're going to be about it, then you have to be able to stand on it by yourself. You can't make up something like Black people are in favor of Jim Crow laws. <laughs> Actually used to hold us down. Like we, we get to sit on the backs of buses and have to give our seats up if white people come on. Yeah, that sounds like something we're all on board with. Like, right. Yeah definitely would love to do that or can't ride in certain areas. I mean, just the transportation laws of Jim Crow were just ridiculous. So right. just, I'd be like, do you have a name, sir? Who, who said that? Who right. Said that? <laughs> right. And in our own community, why would that make any sense? I'm going to take a stab in the dark, knowing my fellow white Americans, that it's like almost trying to make white Americans that are quiet, feel okay with Jim Crow, just knowing our playbook. That makes sense, you know, like, no, no, look, they like it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm just, you know, odds are based on our history. So Smitherman, Smitherman was one of Greenwood's most outspoken characters, as we can tell. And through the years, many of his articles were printed about himself, which was uncommon in the industry. <laughs> He's just like, I'm also going to use this as a memoir. <laughs> Like a exactly. Day. <laughs> yeah. I don't oh, blame him. I love it. The guy's like, here's some of the titles that I found. Smitherman shoots at flower thief. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Smitherman oh. and his family. Love it. <laughs> Smitherman yeah. and Dewey Riot. And Smitherman versus the rioters. Oh my god. I love Smitherman so much. Uh, to have that kind of confidence, like I'm going to write an article about myself in my own newspaper and then publish it. I don't even think Smitherman and his family is covering an actual event that happened. Like right. at least shoots the flower thief. Like that's almost newsy. This, this is like a Christmas card, like how we're all doing. Yes. Like, what is this? This is, it takes me super long to write this and publish it. Like think about it, it was back then. So whatever else I feel like sprinkling in here, you're going to get that too. Like, okay, I definitely support it. This is like the first blog. <laughs> Just... So true. So true. Yeah. They're like, oh my gosh, we have to find out what Smitherman's doing this week. <laughs> <laughs> Pictures of himself cooking and stuff. Oh, this is so interesting. I love it so much. Right. Yeah, it is kind of like a blogger because like it's, it's like he keeps like, well, like a social activist blogger because like he so he starts getting known for all this stuff. And then he ends up meeting with the governor on more than one occasion. And he was the only paper to cover the governor, quote, interracial conferences, end quote. And in addition to his duties on the newspaper, he was eventually appointed justice of the peace. 
Wow. I don't know why I love that. I, I know. I don't know why I love that. You're going to love this. Fun fact. Smitherman's descendants who still reside in the Tulsa area, they are also active in politics. For example, they spoke out against an advocated discouragement of a public rally for former President Trump in their city today. That's well, great. Today, you know. Yes, right? That's awesome. Love it. Because, right, he All was right. trying to do his rally, was it on Juneteenth? He was trying to do his rally in Tulsa? He was, he went in on Juneteenth. He was going to have his rally. And in Oklahoma, like, no, you can't have your rally here with the way you speak. And he ended up canceling it. And he lied and was like, oh, well, you know, nobody knew about Juneteenth until I did. And everyone's like, it's real disrespectful for you to come into Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the site of Greenwood District spouting your bullshit get the fuck out and he was like yeah i that was my idea first you're like whatever just don't come here i do remember that i do remember that god damn i didn't know it had to do with juneteenth yeah they were gonna have it on june 19th of 2020 i believe and that's why juneteenth kind of blew up because he was like well i didn't even know and it's like you your your office says something about juneteenth every year and he was like, well, wow. no. and that's when he was like, well, Juneteenth, nobody knew about Juneteenth until I said something about it. And I made it famous. And I'm like, no, dude, you just don't talk to black people. We've known. It's not a secret. <laughs> like, you, just, you don't have any black friends like you say you do. Black excellence, descendants of Smitherman. I had no idea. It was the Juneteenth one. Oh my God. Right. Mm, not, not a great, not a great look, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to end it here with one of my favorite groups of people. The last uh, notable group of citizens in Greenwood, lawyers. And the most notable of these was a gentleman by the name of Buck Colbert Franklin. Unlike most of his contemporaries, Franklin did not migrate from the South. He was born in Homer, Oklahoma. And this placed him in the midst of Pickens County, As a young man, Franklin practiced law in Armour, Oklahoma, where he often struggled to hold his ground within a white supremacist judicial system. He was once ordered to be silent by a judge in a Louisiana courtroom solely on the basis of his race. Later, Franklin marries Molly Parker and the pair moved to the Greenwood District shortly before the infamous riot. Franklin is most noted for representing several of the Tulsa survivors of the riot. And like to end it on a on a happy note, fun fact, Franklin's son, John Hope, assisted with the Supreme Court brief that resulted in Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. Wow, we got rid of separate but equal. That's amazing. Descendant of Greenwood. Wow. It, again, it's just so encouraging to hear about black excellence. Like I was in, like I talked to you guys last time about being in Philly and seeing the black excellence. And there's just something about seeing that and hearing those stories that is just so encouraging and so uplifting. And you're just like, man, like black people are really awesome. Like (laughs) we're so it's so cool. I love it. So thank you for sharing that because there's a lot I didn't know in that. And, you know, again, history that is erased, right? And this is what critical race theory is and, or, you know, learning about these things and learning about how race plays into these things and why they did this and how profitable it was all has to do with race and racism at the time. They wouldn't have had to do this if they weren't dealing with race and racism and Jim Crow laws and things like that. So this is why we have to talk about this and this is why we have to teach it as well. And banking black or buying from black business is more than consuming. But yeah, if this stuff interests you go further, there's the economics, it's a lot of theory, a lot of history, it's all out there at your fingertips. Also, it's the, I believe, the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa race riots. Yeah, it happened, um, I believe, May 31st, June 1st of 1921. So we just passed it. And Blue, thank you for your call to action. Kind of focus on what was 
Black Wall Street, i.e. the Greenwood District, before the Tulsa race riots, like, right? Like, as we all know, you don't know about the Tulsa race riots. And if you do, that's all you know. Black history is more than the pain and suffering. And it didn't start, but if they won't give it to you, you can come here. We'll give it to you for free. <laughs> Love it. And that audience, that's the Red Dove story of Black Wall Street before the Tulsa race riots. And our source material for this two-parter is two books. First is Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District by Hannibal B. Johnson and Black Wall Street, the history of the Greenwood District before the Tulsa race riot um, published by the Charles River editors. The Red Dove purchased their copies from harrietsbookshop.com. It's Harriet's with two T's, bookshop.com. And if you're in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area, great news. Harriet's Bookshop has recently opened her second store, her sister's store in Collinswood, New Jersey, and it's called Ida's Bookshop. So go in, check out Ida's Bookshop, buy all your books from Harriet's Bookshop, whether it's at Harriet's in Philadelphia or Ida's in Collinswood. Either way, support Black business, especially Harriet's Bookshop. All right, if you like this show, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Um, and you can find us at on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Thank you so much. Until next time.